Well, Ruth chapter 2. You guys might remember back last week in chapter 1. A guy by the name of Eli Melech, or Elimech, depends on how you you say it. And uh, his wife, Naomi. His name is God is King. Her name is Pleasant. They were born at a time when Bethlehem and Judah was probably walking righteously and doing well. But the time they were raising their kids, it was at a very difficult time. Their kids were named Sickly and Puny. And probably she didn't have good food while she was pregnant and probably didn't have good nutritious food while they were growing up. But they got to the point where the famine was too much. And they decided to leave the promised land and move, of all places, to Moab. Moab was a place that had been cursed by God. Because the Moabites had did many evil things to the children of Israel, especially with Balaam and trying to get him to prophesy destruction on them. And God wouldn't allow Balaam to do that. But Balaam did counsel the king of Moab, Balak, to take the beautiful Moabite women and go down and seduce the young Jewish men and say, hold it, stop, we can't have sex yet. you got to first worship my God. Then we can get them all hot and bothered. They thought, okay, this is it. We're going to be able to do it. And they did. And God's wrath poured out against their idolatry. God judged Balaam and Balak for that, but God said after that, the Moabites, they are a cursed people and not to be a part in any way the children of Israel. And of course, you won't find any Moabite passports today. The Lord eventually wiped them out. But unfortunately, they made the same mistake Father Abraham did. Remember when he first got in the promised land, there was a famine and he went down to Egypt and we know how that turned out. Didn't turn out well for Abraham either. But uh, while they were in the land of the Moabites, all three guys die. Eli Melech dies, and then Chilion dies, and what was the other son's name? I can't, I can't remember Sickly's name. Chilion and, and uh, who do you got? Mel- what is it? Melion. Me- Mel- what is it? Melon. Chilion. I knew, of course. I was just helping you to remember the story. And, and so it ended up being Ruth and her two daughter-in-laws. The one daughter-in-law, Orpah, said, yeah, I'll go on back and start to get remarried and be with my family and live out my life as a Moabitess. But Ruth said, no way, I'm not going to leave you. And Naomi really put the pressure on her, saying, I can't have children that I could give you uh, my other sons, I don't, I'm too old, it's not going to happen. And even if I was married now and got pregnant today, at the time they're of age, you would be old. And, and no, this is not going to work out. But Ruth, in the beautiful poetry we saw in chapter 1, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you lie, I will lie. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And The Lord help us if anything but death parts us. She saw that Ruth was determined, and she said, okay, let's go to Bethlehem. 
And she came to Bethlehem, and, and they're like, oh, so happy. Naomi, the pleasant one, is here. And, and she scolds him and says, no, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And, and she lays it out. Man, God's hand has been against me. The Almighty, she says, number one, has dealt very bitterly with me. Number two, I went out full, and the Lord had brought me home again empty. Interesting. She left because it was a time of a famine. But looking back, she goes, we really weren't that bad off. <laughs> Compared to where I am now, I, I, I realized there was plenty here. But the grass is always greener on the other side of the, the fence, right? I, I, I went out full, and now I've come back. The Lord has brought me back empty. And then she says, the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Wow. Quite a list of things, how God's hand was just against her and disappointed in her and, and testified against her and afflicted her. And, and that was the way she pictured it. But she's going to learn, and we're going to all learn, as soon as she headed back home, the blessings once again began to open up. It wasn't that the Lord afflicted her. She afflicted herself by leaving. The Lord's hand wasn't against her. She just wasn't under the spout where the blessings flowed out. She left the promised land, and she's amazed that she's not getting the blessings of the promised land. I mean, isn't that the case? The Lord didn't depart from her whatsoever. She departed from the Lord. And we all learn that lesson, don't we? Like the prodigal son. But what do we learn in the prodigal son? When he finally realizes, man, I left full and now I'm in this pig pen empty. And he got up and headed home. The only time we ever see God in a hurry in the entire Bible is when he ran towards the prodigal son and embraced him. And so we're going to see this in Naomi. God wasn't thinking those things about her that she felt. Now, now could you convince her otherwise? People feel what they feel, and you can't really change their feelings. It, it's, it's really bad that we as Americans live on our feelings, and we often feel that our feelings are leading us in a positive way. <laughs> well, let me tell you, the feelings are a part of your flesh, okay? And you are, if, if you're not sure what to do, do the opposite of your feelings. And you'll probably be more correct than you would listening to your feelings and going with them. Feelings, and, I, and I, this is something I really talk to my kids about, said don't go by your feelings, and um, we come now to chapter 2, verse 1 tonight. There was a relative, Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elamech. His name was Boaz. So we begin now in this story with a brand new guy. His name is Boaz. It's not actually a relative of Naomi. It's a relative of her dead husband. So either way, just as good. In the King James, instead of using the word relative, it uses the word kinsman, which is important. As we get on in this chapter and through the book, the word kinsman is going to become an important 
word. This man was of great wealth. Interesting that this phrase, a man of great wealth, is translated almost every other time, a mighty man of valor. So is Boaz a wealthy man? Maybe for Bethlehem he was. But, uh, he, you know, I, I don't think he was a wealthy man. Later, matter of fact, in this, later on, uh, he's going to say, I, I figured you would have married a, a wealthier man. He actually says that to her. But he's, just, he's being described as a mighty man of valor. And, um, and I love this. He was this man of great nobility and bravery and character. Gideon was the first guy called a mighty man of valor, which is rather interesting because the Lord saw him in a way that he didn't see himself in Judges 6.12. Japheth, another judge, was called a mighty man of valor. David, they, after he killed Goliath, or right before they killed Goliath, when he was saying, hey, let me at this guy, it actually describes David as a young boy, as a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, handsome person, and the Lord was with him. And and there's many other places I have there in the notes if you want to see. Well, this guy's name takes note, and it says, hey, you need to take a note. Boaz, his name, it tells us in the Strongs, it says fleetness. We would probably say swiftness. He was quick. He was a man getting the job done. Maybe as a kid he could run fast. I don't know. But he was a go-getter. And, and later on, when him and Ruth are, are going to get married or he's going to work on it, boy, he gets right on it. He swiftly takes her as his bride. And, and you got to remember, guys, this is going to be a picture of Christ and the church. And the Lord wants to swiftly come and get his bride. And when the father finally says, go, son, it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. Well, also don't forget that this guy, Boaz, would be the grandfather of David. And the great-grandfather of Solomon. And Solomon, in building the outer courts of the temple, he actually built a place, named it after himself, Solomon's Porch. And there were, it was sort of the beginning of the temple before you got to the temple. And there were two giant pillars. And the one on the left, he named after his great-grandfather, Boaz. And it tells us that in 1 Kings 7.21 and 2 Chronicles 3.17. There was pillars there in Solomon's porch, one on the right and one on the left. And the one on the left, he named after great-grandfather Boaz. Well, in verse 2 and 3, So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose side I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So our lot in life is we are at the bottom rung of poverty. And it's a hard thing for you, Naomi, but you need to let me go ahead and, and do the duties of a poor person in trying to get some kind of sustenance for us. 
No doubt it was a bit humbling for Naomi. And it's interesting, Ruth here is saying, Naomi is evidently too old for this at this time. And, and she's like, hey, I, I, it doesn't matter to me. We see a real humble heart saying, I'm going to go out as the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, and identify with the lowly. And I'm not embarrassed by that. And in verse 3, then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. They gleaned the heads of the grain. What, what does that mean? Well, God put together in advance a welfare system. He says it's going to happen, maybe because of sickness Maybe because of death. There's different reasons that people are going to end up not being able to take care of themselves, even in the promised land. And so what I want you to do, and this is all talked about before they ever get to the promised land. When you go, you, you can't harvest the corners of your field. You need to round it off and leave the corners alone. And then along the edges as well. You need to leave those alone so the poor people can have that. In Deuteronomy 24, that's in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. In Deuteronomy 24 and 19 to 22, he, he says, when you're out harvesting the field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. So you've got a couple of bundles together and you walk away and you leave one of the bundles or one of the baskets, you leave it behind, you can't go get it. It's now for the poor people to get. And he names it. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, which interesting enough, Ruth was all three. <laughs> she wasn't just one of those. She was all of those. And... Um, it also says that you shall not go over the, the bows again. So you have one chance to harvest, and that's it. So you're going through the grapes, and you realize, oh, those grapes aren't ready to cut. I'm not going to harvest them yet, but you can't harvest them later either. When I uh, lived in the farming community of Central California, uh, one summer I actually worked on the harvesters, putting big, giant, heavy parts of it together and and man, now they're so computerized. I mean, this is back in the 70s, it was computerized. Those things had a million eyes, and they can differentiate. This was tomato fields at one point we were doing. And they have an ability to pick out how red of a tomato they want to pick. And they'll leave all the other ones alone. But of course, they'll wait and come back and do a two or three passes uh, as the days go by to, to get them all or as many as they can. But in these days, no, you had one chance at doing it. And you can't glean it twice. Why? This was a welfare system, but it was allowing people to keep their dignity. They couldn't sit at home and wait for a check in the mail. Okay? That, that that's an, it takes away people's self-esteem. It takes away their dignity. These people still had to work hard to get um, sustenance. So they had to leave the corners of the field. They only had one pass of it. 
If they dropped something or left something behind, they couldn't go pick it up. So she, Ruth, I love this, happened to come to a field that was Boaz's. She, she had no idea. She, she just is walking and, nope, not that field. No, not that field. Oh, you know what? This looks like a good place. I'm going to go to this field. Once again, like in the book of Esther, we're seeing the providential hand of God. I, I love to see the Lord doing that. Most of the time we don't. It's after the fact we, we look back. But in those handful of times when you are in real time seeing the providential hand of God, it's a pretty awesome miracle. It really is. Years ago, I was going to Mexico City. This is back when I was on staff at Horizon. And we were going to do some evangelism there. Mike had a crusade. And I invited a missionary from Tijuana. And, um, and so he was going to go and be a part of my evangelistic team that I put together there at Horizon. And uh, he said, you know, you see this picture here as we're on the plane? He goes, this guy came from Mexico City because he was told that all you had to do is once you got to America is get a broom and sweep one city block of gutters and you'll have enough money to, to retire on. He fully believed it. <laughs> well, he got to America and saw our gutters and, and realized that wasn't going to happen. But he ended up getting on drugs and, and the last his family had heard is, was he was killing himself on drugs and they hadn't heard from him and they assumed he was dead probably. It had been five years since he had contacted them because they had moved and they, he had no ability to, to reach them. So he said, hey, if we can, we're going to try to find this guy's family. And I'm like, okay. So we had one day free. And we got up early and ate, and we were getting on a bus. We couldn't hardly get on, and the bus driver yelled and said, let these gringos on, you know. And we got on the bus, and then we realized, we got to get off the bus. There's the tram, the metro we got to get on. And we couldn't get off, and the bus driver said, hey, let the gringos off. And we got off, and, and the guys are telling us, there are so many people getting on the metro. It'll take you hours to get on the metro, and be careful. You might get robbed or stabbed before you make it. And we're just praying, going, Lord, run your hands. We were going to an area in Mexico City called Netza. You got to understand, it's the world's largest population in one city. And so even though Netza, geographically, I don't know how big it was, but there are millions of people. And we had no idea. We had no address. But we were just going to go to that area and check it out. And so... They're telling us, man, don't bother trying to get on the metro. You've got to find some other way. That's the only way. Mexico City is very hard to get around, just so congested. As we are going towards the metro, everybody comes walking at us, a sea of people. And then they tell us it's broke. It's not going to get fixed. Last time it was a couple of days. So we're just walking to the metro going, Lord, take care of us. And we get to the metro, and it starts working. And we're like the only guys on the metro instead of a packed house. And we get on the metro and we, we get to Netza and we realize this place is huge, giant skyscrapers. And we just start walking around and we just start praying and 
go down one block and go down another block. And we walked down, we walked miles. And the very first person we talked to, there's this little girl out in front of her house on the steps playing. And we said, do you know this guy right here? And we showed the picture. And she says, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. And she ran in the house. Her mom came out, chewing us out for talking to her daughter, which is understandable. And we said, do you know this guy? She looked at it and she goes, that's my brother. The entire family moved away from that, so I had to. We just moved back. Absolute miracle. There's no way to explain it. And she says, our whole family has not gotten together in years. But today, we are actually getting together. But it's on another area of town. And if you come back in about three hours, I'll put you in my bug and I'll drive you over there and you can tell the family uh, whatever you want to tell them about my brother. So we went and played some basketball and witnessed and had a good time and got back in the car and we drove and uh, we got there and the whole extended family was there and we're eating oh, some really great food and, and they're like, hey, tell us about it. And we, we told them about how he had gotten born again and it was just a great time of witnessing and I realized I'm supposed to be at the crusade, a giant building at six o'clock I'm I got to be there early to help set up and and uh I had a very important part of, of overseeing the crusade and I'm telling Sean like I don't know how this happened and I'm in trouble because I mean just to go two blocks took an hour and I'm talking and, and, and we're a little upset and the guy said what where are you trying to get and we told him said man I got to be there now and uh, the guy says, come here. We walked out in the front yard. He pointed catty corner across the street, and he goes, that's the building. <laughs> we walked across the street, and I was there on time. That's the miracle. I was on time in Mexico. <laughs> End of story. The other stuff doesn't really matter. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is awesome to see real time the providential hand of God. But let me tell you. That's happening every day for us who are believers. There's no coincidences in God's kingdom. Right down to being left-handed or right-handed, we learn in the book of Judges, to every hair upon our head, right? And it is exciting to be a Christian. I don't know why anybody would want to be anything but a Christian. And, and we have that confidence of that great verse, Romans 8, 28, you may not know John 3.16, but I know you'll know Romans 8.28. We know God works all things together for good. Now, non-believers, that's usually, they think that's where the verse ends. But it's not the verse ends, right? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And if you want to see God's hand of blessing in your life, you want to see that providential be confident if you don't see it we know we don't always see it but we know that God's providential hand is turning all things around for good well how can I get that back in my life start loving God again love him with all your heart mind soul and strength identify that Lord I believe in you I must be a called one unto you and now live according to his purpose right 
I mean, Jesus said it plainly in Matthew 6, 33. He said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. This is my paraphrase. And all the earth stuff will work itself out. What you're going to eat and drink and wear and tomorrow, you don't have to even worry about tomorrow. Just today. You don't have to worry about all the earth stuff. I, I will providentially make that stuff work out for you. You don't have to concentrate on the earth stuff. Concentrate on the heaven stuff, and the earth stuff will providentially work itself out. You don't need to be concerned about that. That's what the people who don't have God in their life do. They worry about the earth stuff. So we don't need to wait around and wait for God to do some supernatural thing, and then I can go, okay, now I know. I love what Chuck Smith used to always say. God is at work supernaturally in the natural. How true that is on so many levels. But now that Ruth has committed her life, your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. I am now a follower of your people, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you can be confident. I, I love that Proverbs 16. Such a great balance and such a great insight. Solomon in Proverbs 16.1 said, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. we we got to do the earth stuff that's in front of us in the natural. But then we know that God's supernatural is going to also be there for us. Proverbs 16:3, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Proverbs 16:9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Boy, we see this in Ruth, don't we? Hey Naomi, I need to get out and and work because we need food. <laughs> and and I I understand here in this culture that there's provisions set aside for people like me, a widow, a stranger, a fatherless person. I've left my old family behind. I have no family, extended family to help me. I, I'm all of those things. And, and so I need to go out and, and, and do this. And what did the Lord do? The Lord established her thoughts. The Lord gave her the, the, his, his words in the midst of her words. And the Lord directed her steps in the midst of her natural planning, but yet it was a supernatural work of God. Well, verse 4 through 7 now. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So he noticed right away. This probably beautiful Moabite gal. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued with mourning until now, though she rested a little in the house. She's been working hard. So couldn't you imagine... A boss like this, walking in, the Lord bless all you guys. And everybody stands up and says, no, the Lord bless you. Boy, wouldn't that be a delightful place to work? 
what, what do we notice here? Boaz isn't irritated by all of these urchins, all these kids running around, all these old women and widows and orphans and aliens, people that are from other countries, you know, sort of getting underneath his workers and, and trying to grab stuff up before the workers could grab it. And, and you know, I, I think probably most people were a little irritated. You got your employees, you got a job you got to get done, you want to do your harvest, and you got all of these other elements making things very complicated and busy. I, I think most people like Boaz probably wouldn't have had a joyful, gracious heart that way. But Boaz comes out. We notice he's looking at them. He recognizes them. There's one lady he doesn't recognize out of the group. Hey, I recognize, the Lord bless you. I know you. And, and, and may you have a great harvest as well. And, and, and oh, I, I don't want to address her publicly. I wouldn't be culturally right. But he quickly found who he didn't know and, and wanted to know her situation. Boy, the Bible talks a lot about this, of how to view those who are poor. A lot of verses. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. And he who honors him has mercy on the needy. In Proverbs nineteen seventeen, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. <laughs> And he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 22.9. He who has a generous or good or clear eye is a giving person will be blessed. For he gives his bread to the poor. Proverbs 28.27. He who gives to the poor will not lack. He who hides his eyes will have many curses. First John 3.16-18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In verse 17 of 1 John 3, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. Now, I, I, I do want to clarify, there's a lot of other <laughs> verses on helping people in need. For example, the Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, <laughs> but such as I have give I thee. He did have silver and gold. Matter of fact, they were taking care of thousands of widows in the temple there. There were so many, they finally had to elect seven deacons to take care of it because they needed to give themselves to the word of God in prayer. So just because there is somebody in need in front of you doesn't immediately mean you, you give them cash. I, I think you got to be wise. you got to be discerning. And I think if we see somebody who's high and they need a new fix and I'm going to give them 20 bucks and they're going to go put some more poison in their bodies, I probably wouldn't do that. I know on more than one occasion with Chuck, 
somebody said, oh, yeah, I need, I, I'm hungry. I need some food. And, and Chuck would roll up some money and put it in their hand. And their, before they pulled their hand back, he would say, Lord, bless this money for food only. And if they spend it on anything other than that, Lord, deal with them. So I, I, I personally wouldn't have used that money for anything other than food. Um, so, but at the same time, clearly, when there's those in our church family in need that we know that are with us, that's a whole different thing, right? That's a whole different thing. And I think then we're not going to be putting a Band-Aid on stuff. I mean, am I really going to give a guy a dollar or five dollars so I don't feel guilty? I mean, am I really helping? I mean, if somebody's really in need, it's more than five dollars they need, right? They probably need a lot of time. They need resources. They need a place to stay. They need contacts to get a job. There's probably a lot of things they need, and they're out there. We had a situation here in our church this last year. Um, Raymond, who retired from his work, decided to do one of his lifelong ambitions and be a security guard over on Trask and what was the other street there? There were the and Beach, yeah, Trask and Beach. Yeah, this Raymond's dad. You didn't retire yet. I know that. Um, but this lady was in the car, and, and he dealt with a lot of homeless over there in that Walmart, or not Walmart, Costco parking lot. And anyway, he finds out, yeah, this lady's a believer. She's living in a car. She was at one time living a, a difficult lifestyle that brought her to this condition. Her family had pretty much cut her off. And invited her to come to church. She came to church. She was very knowledgeable of the word. Now, she was a, a, a rough person. I mean, it was, it, it was hard to be around her in some ways. Because she, she, would, she was very overtly, if you've been around people that have been in alcohol and drugs, you, you know what I'm talking about. They, they don't have filters. They don't have the ability to, to know societal timing of speaking and not speaking and it's not that easy. And uh, she came, and, and some of the people here in the church really did help her out. They got her into a hotel room and gave her money for food. And, and uh, she was coming to church here, and to every Bible study we had, she came to a couple at our house a week. As a matter of fact, and we, we had just gotten our furniture in our house. And, and we actually have never bought nice furniture in our lives because we had four kids, three boys, you know? And it's like, why bother, you know? And we had dogs, and, and we, we constantly had people in our house. My, my kids, you, you, you talk to them now, they, they cannot remember sleeping in their own bed. There was always somebody else in their beds. Uh, missionaries and their families and pastors and we, we, we were just always had a lot of extra people at our house year round and uh, of course most of my kids loved it they thought it was wonderful I'm discovering that some of my kids didn't like that but <laughs> they're they're in their 30s now they got to deal with it anyway 
we had just gotten the brand new couch the evening before, and the next day, Jane had come to the Bible study and fell asleep, and she had a pen in her lap that fell over, and our furniture that we hadn't even had 24 hours had a giant ink spot in the white chair. And she stayed and told us that it was her, and we were like, oh, well, there it is, you know, it's been anointed, it's been, <laughs> we can quit worrying about whether it gets dirty or not. And it wasn't a big deal to us at all. But the holidays are coming around, and, and, and you know, November is here, and, and Cheryl says, man, should, should we have, invite Jane for, for Thanksgiving? And at first, you know, our kids were going to come down. We hadn't seen them in, in months. You know, the COVID had messed things up, and, and I really wanted to just give all the energy without distraction to the kids and the grandkids. But as it turned out with the COVID, my daughter-in-law is a nurse. And anyway, they didn't come. It ended up just being myself and my mother-in-law and my wife. And it was like, man, we should have invited her. And, and I, you know, I remember us wrestling, should we, shouldn't we? And, and I'll tell you what, in my lifetime, there's been a few times that I didn't give when I could have given, and I regret it. I, I pretty much... Didn't, I, I don't go the other way, going, man, I'm sure glad I didn't give. I'm sure glad I didn't do that. I'm just telling you, I have some very clear times in my life, three or four, because we're very giving people, but there are times I could have given and I didn't, and I realize afterwards I really, really, really should have given. Sometimes it was a lot. Sometimes it was a little bit. I, I really regret not giving. And I'll tell you what, when Thanksgiving Day came, and I really regret not having Jane over. Well, the question came again at Christmas time, and the same situation. And so we decided not to invite her again. And it was the same situation. I'm like, ah, here we had two opportunities, and I struck out twice. And then we get the word. I believe it was Christmas Eve, but it was the day or so right around there is when they found her dead in that hotel. She wasn't that old, but she died. She had just put some ham in the microwave in the hotel room to heat up, and she just killed over dead. And um, in saying all of that, looking back at it, yeah, you know, you know when, you, when you do have other people, and especially people that are rough around the edges like Jane, you really don't get back. I mean, when you're hanging around lovely people, <laughs> you give, you get, you say some interesting things, they say some interesting things. They, you know, it's sort of a give and a take, and you're like, wow, it's great being around them. But then there's other people you give and give and give, and they take and they take and they take. And that's all the relationship will ever be. And there's just those kind of people. And you're probably on the other end. There's probably people that I take and take and never really give back to them. I think I am. But they're like going, yeah, you know, you don't really add anything to me. I don't know who those people are. Um, I don't like them. Um, so, but I'm just saying that pretty much the kind of people that, are dealing with 
are people that you give and they aren't going to be able to give back. And, and here with Boaz, I mean, it was not convenient to have all these people around. It wasn't good for him. But yet, his heart rejoiced. He had a joyful, giving heart. And he prays a blessing on the people. The Lord bless you. And all the people together, they prayed the prayer. And the Lord bless you. What a beautiful, reciprocal thing when you have this giving heart, this joyful giving heart. And then you realize as you give, it's given back into you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And he asks the question, who's this woman? And, and they tell him, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Remember, she's from Moab. She's a Moabitess. And, and she, interesting enough, came and asked permission if she could glean in our field. Very submissive. Very respectful. It was her right. She didn't have to ask. But yet she did. But then they take a note. She was under inspection. She didn't know it. Living in small towns is a difficult thing. I lived in a small town for nine months uh, a couple of years back. And I'll tell you what, I never lived in a small town like that before. Everybody knows your business. I had a guy, uh, one of the appointment pastors, uh, Terry McNabb, came and he spoke. And on a Sunday, and the next morning, he goes to get a coffee at the coffee, one of the coffee shop type things, the kiosk things. And uh, he orders a coffee, and as she's handing it to him, she goes, so are you heading back to Portland now, Terry? And he's like, oh, oh, you go to Calvary Chapel? No, no, I don't go to Calvary Chapel. But she knew. She knew he was in town, special speaker, and knew he lived in Portland. I mean, knew all about him, you know. You know, how's that backache, you know? And <laughs> did you take your medication this morning? And, you know, it's like, whoa. Um, it's everybody knows your business and and after a while it starts to wear on you but she was under inspection boy we need to keep that in mind people are watching aren't they well in verse 8 and 9 and Boaz said to Ruth you will listen my daughter will you not so would you take some advice can I make some suggestions and she's like yeah go ahead do not go to glean in another field nor go from here (coughs) but stay close by my young women Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So I want you to hang out with my female employees. I know you're not an employee, but instead of going out where all the the other gleaners are, I want you to stay right next to my lady employees for your safety. And I've told the young men to stay away from you and not to harass you in any way. And, and if you're thirsty, you, 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 don't, you can just go and get right out of the employee jug that's nearby and drink. I, I love this. Boaz shows such kindness to this foreign Moabitess woman. I want you to have companionship. Be around the other young women. I want you to have protection. I've told all the young men to leave you alone. And I want you to have refreshment. Anytime you thirst, I want you to have access to the same water we all drink from. 
Well, in verse 10 through 13, so she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? In the old King James, it says, why have I found grace in your eyes? Better translation there. Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Moab And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work. Here he's praying again, praying a blessing. The Lord repay your work and, and full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wing you have come for refuge. So poetic. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Wow, she's overwhelmed. She just collapses on the ground. She's just down on her face on the ground before him. And and she's speaking and just saying, why, why would I get grace from you like this. I'm a a cursed people. I'm a Moabitess. You know us. And yet he had such a heart for the stranger. I'm not going to read the verses, but I have them listed for you there. But the children of Israel were commanded to love the stranger because they were once strangers. They were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians did not treat the foreigners very well, did they? And he said, remember how you were treated as a foreigner in a foreign land. And when the situation reverses, don't you be the Egyptian. So people ask me about politics, and I really have no opinion. Well, what do you think of the border wall? Good idea. But what do you think of immigration? Well, if I were a politician... Uh, I would say one thing, but as a pastor, I say something totally different. I could care less. Let them all come in. But they're not just coming from Mexico and South America. They're coming from all other nations. Great. We're going to be able to witness the people of every tongue, of every nation, of every people. Maybe that's why they're in heaven like that. Let them come on in. Well, they might live right outside my house then I don't have to go very far to witness to them. But, 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 but a little bit of trash there. This isn't heaven. I'm going to heaven. This isn't my heaven. It's smelly here. It's trashy here. People are in my way and inconveniencing me. I, it, it's okay. Th- those are Americanism things that we've had in the past Maybe we won't have in the future. We'll finally be like the rest of the world. I mean, God knows that's what the Democrats want. (laughs) They want us all to be equally poor. Equally with a health care system that nobody would want to really use. So, again, do I care about those things? Not as a pastor, not as a Christian. I, I have one thought, and that's just to love everybody that comes my way. I could care less if they're legal or not. We're going to welcome everybody here to love the Lord. No green cards required. And 
I got a command in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament that says, you mistreat a foreigner, a stranger, you're going to stand before God about that. So should they be here? Probably not. Should have got that wall built. But they're here. So we'll let them know they shouldn't be here and tell them to go back. Not, not even a little bit. I'm going to give them a big hug and invite them to church. I was at Home Depot this last week, and there was a guy there outside, you know, sitting around waiting for work. I didn't have that, but I, I walked up and I gave him one of our things from our church and said, hey, I'd love you to come to church. Do you know there's an app now that you can put on and it'll automatically translate the message as you preach it? Isn't that amazing? But, um, yeah, I, I, let's just love the stranger and let's leave the politics to the politicians. I mean, even the best politician is one mixed up, screwed up guy. I mean, the best politician is, is pretty worthless in my mind because even if they want to get the right things done, they, they can't seem to get on the same page when it's important. So I, I really have no hope in that. But boy, when it comes to the foreigner, love on him. Because one of Jesus' great-great-grandmothers was a foreigner. And, and we also, believe it or not, probably come from foreigners, right? Unless you're American Indian here, you also were once a foreigner in this land. So he says, it's been reported to me. I, I've heard all about your kindness and your respect to Naomi. And I just know that now that you're submitted unto the God of Israel, you're going to see that God blessing that kind of person. So Ruth really stands sort of like a new believer, a new convert. She had put her trust in the Lord God of Israel. She left her former association. She cut off the past and moved forward into the future. She came in among strangers. She was very low in her own eyes. She found protection under the wings of God. Boaz is sort of like an old mature believer saying, hey, young believer Ruth, you're going to start seeing God's blessings in your life because you're walking in his will and you're doing the kind of things that the God of Israel would want. And now you're going to see those blessings. Spurgeon said it observed that he saluted her with words of tender encouragement. For this is precisely what I want all the elder Christians among you to do to those who are counterparts of Ruth. I want you to make a point of looking out the young converts, of, look, of looking out to the, the young converts, speaking to them goodly words, comfortable words, whereby they may be cheered and strengthened. And so Boaz prays this blessing upon her. And then he does it so poetically under whose wings you have now come. What a beautiful picture. These tiny little birds under the wings of mama bird. David talks about this in Psalm 17, verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Psalms 36, 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 63, 7. Because you have been my help, therefore 
in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. Wow. Ruth, we have an incredible, probably I think one of the greatest poetry ever in Ruth chapter 1 from Ruth as she spoke to Naomi. And now we see Boaz as a poet also. So I wonder where David got his gift of writing such incredible psalms. Think it was in the DNA a little bit there? Or maybe it was written down somewhere. The poems of Boaz, the poems of Ruth. Maybe he grew up with that. Do you think David got to know Grandpa Boaz and Grandma Ruth? I think so. And probably heard them speak so graciously and at times so poetically. And here he sort of stills some of old Boaz's lines and uses them later in the Psalms and, and says, oh, yeah, Grandpa Boaz used to always use this. And now that's where I'm at. Oh, just like he told Grandma back before they got married, you are now under the wings of God. And David says, oh, that's beautiful. That's where I find myself also needing to go. And then she says, let me find favor in your sight. In other words, thank you, Boaz. Thank you for those wonderful words. And may I live up to your expectation. Well, in verse 14 and 15, now Boaz said to her at the mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip the piece of bread in the vinegar or the, the wine. So she sat besides the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her, leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she's invited over now with all the employees and saying, hey, come on over and eat. And, and he says, sit right next to me so you can, you can dip in the same bowl I'm dipping in. I, I think there's a little romance happening here, huh? I, I mean, I, I think he's testing the waters to see, see how she's, you know, going, hey, this is cool sitting next to Boaz or man. What's this old guy wanting? He's sort of filling things out. This, this would have been hard probably to her to accept this mill. She's already overwhelmed with his grace. And then grace upon grace. And now he wants her to not just sit at the mill, but sit in an honored position at the mill next to Boaz. I'm sure everything in her, just like you and me, would be going... Thank you so much. You've already done so much for me. You know, I'm going to say no and just go out with the other uh, widows and, and sit under the tree and eat with them today. I, I'm sure that would have been more comfortable for her. I, I don't think it would have been comfortable to accept it. I think it would have been very uncomfortable for her to go sit next to Boaz and everybody looking at her and sitting around the table and sitting in this honored position. As we're going to see, guys, the, the analogies of Christ and his bride, the church, are just endless. You know, he tells her, stay next to the young men uh, until the end of the harvest. Hmm, what are we to do as the bride of Christ? Stay next to the young men until the end of the harvest. Stay in my field, Boaz says. I want you to have the best of the field. And now to sit at the table. I'm not going to go into it, but in Romans 14, 
or excuse me, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable how the king, him, in essence, a certain man makes a great feast and invites everybody and everybody starts giving lame excuses. I bought a piece of ground. I bought a cow. I got married. And, and he says, just go out and get everybody who's poor and maimed and lame and blind and invite them in. And they did. And they said, hey, we still got a lot of food left. We still got a lot of empty tables. And he said, go out then into the highways and the byways and, and compel them to come that my house would be filled. But those men who had been invited, they shall not taste of my supper. And um, she didn't pick out, you know, girls on their first date often, you know, don't want to, you know, scarf it down like they will later in life. But, <laughs> but you know, she, she, she nibbles and, and she sort of has a plate full and she's thinking, man, this is so good. We haven't had food like this in a while. I'm going to keep some of this later for Naomi. So even there at the table, she's thinking of her mother-in-law who's not at that wonderful table. And in verse 17 and 18, and she gleaned in the field until the evening, beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about the ephah of barley. Then she took up and went to the city and her mother-in-law and saw what she had gleaned, and she bought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So she worked all day, probably till the sun's almost down, and then she's got to beat out the grain, separate the, the, the wheat, or in this case, the barley from the chaff, and get it into a bucket. And it was about five and a half pounds of barley, about 22 liters of barley. And, um, and so she comes in, and, and, and her mother-in-law... Now, in verse 19, said to her, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? She's blown away. This is, I, I had no idea you were going to come back with this kind of wealth. Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law on whom she had worked and said, oh, the man's name, I don't know if you know him or not, but his name's Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, the first positive words in the book. Blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken the kindness to the living and the dead. I don't know which one I am, but whether I'm living or dead, God's showing kindness to me. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. This is the first time in the book here in chapter 2, verse 20, in a very important Hebrew word called goel. We would translate that kinsman redeemer. And in verse 21, Ruth said to Moabites, Ruth the Moabite said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth and to her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that you do not meet do not meet you in any other field. So they, she stayed close by the young men of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So now Naomi, who had been speaking so many negative things, she's realizing God hasn't rejected me. God's hand has always been upon me. 
I'm back in the land and God's blessings are there. I'm back under the spout. And she now has seen for herself this providential hand of God. Out of all the fields she could have went to, she went to the one guy that was a close relative of theirs who was in the position of being a goel. And so she speaks these positive words and says, stay next to the goel. This close relative who had an absolute responsibility to marry and to raise up kids to his dead brother or cousin or nephew or uncle, depending on the relationship. So we're going to be going into this much detail. But later in Ruth 4.14, the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, without a goel. And may his name be famous in Israel. Of course, they were speaking of Boaz, but this is a prophecy of Jesus, our Goel. In Matthew 4, 24, and Jesus' fame went out through all of Syria, and they brought unto him all the sick people and taken various diseases and torments and possessed with devils, and there were lunatics and palsies, and he healed them. In Matthew 9, 31, and they were... Uh, when they departed, they spread abroad of his fame, went in all the country, and he wasn't able to enter any cities after that. Luke 5, 15, so much more went their fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Our Goel would become very famous. Of course, this Goel, Boaz, became very famous, didn't he? Boy, you, you know, you, you, pretty, pretty exciting to be the grandpa of David. And, uh, and then eventually, of the lineage of Jesus Christ, pretty popular, pretty famous guy indeed. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we know we're still building on to the real story that's coming in the next couple of weeks. As we look, Lord, at the you, our Boaz, who seeks us out and speaks so kindly to us. We're so unworthy, but yet you love on us and bless us and you give us handfuls of purpose. You have the men purposely drop extra stuff for us. You watch out over us. Tell us to stay near till the end of the harvest. And of course, you so lovingly don't just keep us out of hell. Don't just let us be peasants in heaven, but we are your bride, seated at your right hand, clothed in your righteousness, called the child of God the Father. Oh, Lord, we, we are overwhelmed. Just like Ruth, we just bow to the ground and say, who are we that you would be so full of grace, so full of favor. You've already done way too much, and now you want me to sit at table with you in an honored position and dip in the same bowls in which you dip in. We thank you, Lord. That I am my beloved's, and he is mine. His banner over me is love. Thank you. We receive it. By faith, it's hard, it's humbling, but we come. We come to the supper tonight. We come to you tonight and we're enjoyed we are enraptured we are
blown away and blessed that you want us so badly. You want us so badly. You're going to swiftly work so hard to take us to that wedding room in heaven that you've prepared for us. That bridal suite very soon, the marriage supper of the Lamb very soon. And we thank you.